Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, the place where we keep you informed about emerging technologies, innovation, and the global trends that are changing the world of business. I'm your host, Nikisa Mayoza, and with me always... Mike Grandinetti. We're so happy to be here with you today. A uh, lot to cover, so let's get into it. So when we talk about innovation and the concept of innovation, um, we hear a lot of that, that word being thrown around quite a bit. So, uh, Mike, when you think about innovation, what are some examples of companies looking at innovation the right way that will lead to greater success for them? Yeah, it's a great question, right? And, and as you suggest, innovation is such an overused and misused term. And as we get into the discussion, right, we can, we can really start to define the differences between an invention, mm-hmm. which is typically a scientific discovery, and innovation where it may lead to some improvement in the way that we live our lives or the way we conduct business. And then, you know, the very charged phrase today, commonly used, often misused, disruptive innovation, which is when it changes societal behavior. So the disruption part of it, I'm definitely, you know, eager for us to dive into that because I think that a lot of people have heard that term and often it's very loaded. You, you know, does it's not quite clear exactly what it means to, to different businesses. So when we think about innovation, you know, in 2019, 2020, right, let's, let's just take a quick look at history. We've gone through, we're now entering the fourth industrial revolution, right? We started with mechanical and steam power. Right. And that was the first thing that allowed mankind to move from breaking their backs and being, having their, you know, humanity augmented. And of course it allowed for mass production. Yep. And then in the era of Thomas Edison and the invention of electricity and the creation of the electrical grid, another massively transformative, disruptive experience that changed the landscape. Right. And not surprisingly, there were a lot of companies that even though it was rather clear that moving to electrical power was a bold leap forward, a lot of companies were stuck in the past. Yeah. They just didn't have the courage to move forward. And not surprisingly, many of them went away. And then in the 1970s, with the advent of the the use of computers, you know, we then moved into the third industrial revolution, which is the information age. Right. Now, since 2007, with the, you know, the creation of the iPhone, which is the single most successful product in history, without question, and the associated apps in the app store, it created this new digital lifestyle. Right. And in that world, you know, we've jettisoned a lot of the physical things that kept the world moving at a reasonable pace. And starting in 2007, as everything went digital, the velocity began to accelerate exponentially. And so innovation today is required for survival. Companies that are unwilling or more likely incapable of keeping pace are becoming roadkill. So there's not a company on the planet or organization, and I'm not just talking about for-profit businesses, right. social ventures with triple bottom line yep. focus, governmental organizations, you know, defense departments, any institution needs to continue to reinvent itself constantly to remain relevant. Right. And we've seen so many examples where that has not happened. And, and the half-life of these companies is shrinking very rapidly now. So back in 1960, when John F. Kennedy was president, the average half-life of a Standard & Poor's 500 company was about 70, 75 years. Wow. The average half-life today is 15 years. 
So just imagine how dramatically it's changed. And then CEOs, right, the average tenure of a CEO has collapsed from what was around 10 to 12 years to around three, three and a half years today because of the relentless pressure. So I'll say there's so many things that you talked about there that were particularly interesting, right? So when you talk about companies that have disappeared, you know, in my mind, when I heard you say that, I thought about Eastman Kodak. Sure. Or even Nokia, right? These are companies that were ahead of their time and supposedly indestructible, right? Apple comes in and eats Nokia's lunch uh, with a device that seemed like it'd be a natural extension for a Nokia to figure out. And yet they did something different and they transformed companies, right? Uh, So what's interesting is, um, you know, as I look at the landscape and I look at some of the companies that are being disrupted and the industries that are being disrupted, there's still a sense of that fear that you were talking about. There's still some companies and some industries that are just not paying attention. So, you know, I think for our viewers uh, or our listeners, rather, um, what are companies that you think that are really moving too slowly that at some point they'll wake up and it'll be too late? Yeah, and and you know, what you refer to, Nikki, so the vast majority of companies fall into this category. And <laughs> I wish it wasn't so, but I think that it's just so difficult for so many of these executives to get with the program. So let me let me talk more generally first about why they're failing, and then let me talk about some specific examples, Perfect. right? So the, the classic example is Blockbuster. Okay, and Blockbuster back in you know 1997 had 10,000 brick and mortar retail stores. They had 95% market share. I I had a card. Yeah, I mean everybody, everybody. There there was no American living more than on average seven minutes from a Blockbuster retail store, right? They they created and owned the video rental market. Yep. But if you think about the user journey of renting a movie from Blockbuster, right? Every moment of truth was problematic at best. Yep. And the thing that most frustrated their their buyers, their consumers, was the late fees. Yeah. It was a punitive business model, and it just pissed people off. So it turned out that, you know, Reed Hastings, the yeah. the founder and still CEO, remarkably effective CEO of Netflix, yeah. had that experience, got so pissed off, he decided he'd do something about it. Now, the guy running Blockbuster at the time, Wayne Huizienga, you know, he wasn't an idiot. He had already taken two other companies public on the NASDAQ. He was a billionaire. Right. But there was such a lack of ability or humility to understand that a small startup could, in fact, take down the giant. Even though Blockbuster saw Netflix formed in 1997, Mm -hmm. they didn't really truly try to shut them down until 11 years later. But that was too late by then. It was was way too late. Isn't there a famous quote about... um, I think Reed Hastings talking to Wayne saying, listen, I, th- I think you can buy us. Uh, you know, why don't we do this together? Why don't we partner? Because uh, you've got the DVDs and that, the model back then wasn't streaming, right? We didn't have the broadband right. and the, so the DVDs was really the model and it came in the mail and it was convenient. So I, isn't there a story about that, that there being a, uh, a desire to be acquired? This is an example. So many big companies say, no, we're going to figure it out on our own. We don't, we're not going to overpay for you. You, you know, you've got no game and you, you know, you go do your thing. We're going to do your game. We'll meet in the market and we're going to crush you like an insect. Right. And of course, it didn't quite turn out that way. And so, you know, the reason I want to mention the story is because there's this thing called status quo bias. Mm-hmm. There's this remarkable inability to to recognize what got us here won't get us there, right? That one of my favorite quotes comes from the futurist Alan Toffler, and he said that, you know, to be literate in the future 
is it's going to be important to forget a lot of what you've learned because it's no longer going to be relevant. And I compare that to the the white blinding light in the Men in Black movies <laughs> where Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith would come in and, you know, they would shine the light in your eyes and you would forget all about that alien intervention or abduction. Right. And I think every board and every executive team needs to go figure out where they bought that prop for the movie and bring it into the boardroom. Because <laughs> every once in a while, flash everyone. I think it really, and as, as, as funny as it may sound, there's so much relevance here because a lot of companies, right, they're, they're one trick ponies. This is, yep. you know, we're, we're really successful. So because this got us here, let's keep doing this. And I remember in my own career, my one of my very first startups, one of our board members had been a very early investor in Yahoo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that made his career, made him a lot of money. But then at that point, every single startup he wanted to turn into Yahoo, right? And not every startup was meant to have a business model like Yahoo. Right. So a lot of executives hold on too dearly to their current business model. And, and one of the big challenges is most organizations do not organize themselves for continuous reinvention. Right. So they're focusing almost all of their resources on the current product. And they've not allocated, you know, dedicated and, and appropriate resources for the future to reinvent themselves. And, and the classic example is IBM, right? IBM went through a half a million person layoff when Lou Gerstner came in. Not because IBM didn't have smart people, mm-hmm. but IBM's organization was set up with a huge bias toward the mainframe, that if you compared any new idea to the mainframe and you applied the traditional gap accounting metrics, mm-hmm. it wasn't a fair fight. The mainframe was going to win every time because it was a real business. And all these conceptual businesses just couldn't hold up. Right. So even though Gerstner had never been in the tech industry, he was the youngest partner in the history of McKinsey, and he was a strategist. He goes, no, we're doing this all wrong. We're starving the golden goose. And he created much more of a multi-phase portfolio approach where he recognized that, yes, you had to have a strong executive team in the core business, but you needed a completely different DNA in these emerging business opportunities, people that were much more comfortable with ambiguity, people that were driven by different things. Right. People that wanted to create new businesses, new markets were entrepreneurial, maybe within the confines of an IBM, but they still had an entrepreneurial mindset. And so the companies that are doing it right have done this. Most companies that are not doing it right, which is where we started this, this right. thread, yep. don't have that. They're, and, and I ran a hackathon for a company recently where even though they're a massive company, there's almost zero investment in reinventing themselves and their core business is falling way behind. And it doesn't take you know, a lot of thought to see that they are on this very slippery slope where if there's not some re- relatively significant intervention soon, they will suffer the fate of a blockbuster or a lot of these other examples, Kodak being another one. Right, right. Because when the bottom falls out, it happens almost instantaneously, right? Because we see the beginning of an exponential curve looks linear. Yeah. So we think, okay, I can catch up. And then it starts to inflect and it's like, oh boy, it's going straight up now. (laughs) And this is what happened to Blockbuster, for example. And this is what happens to a lot of companies. They just wait too long. So Mike, I know we could continue to talk about this, uh, but we need to take a break. So we'll be right back. This week's topics are brought to you by Rutgers University and its leading disruptive innovation certificate program. At Rutgers, we bring together industry thought leaders and top academic faculty to help you develop your understanding of a range of topics and skills to proficiently navigate the turbulent environment and emerge with a competitive advantage. For more information and to enroll in the leading disruptive innovation program, visit 
li.rutgers.edu. So it sounds like companies are beginning to take advantage of these new techniques and new ideas. I mean, hackathons have been around for a long time, but it looks like, I mean, I I turn on the news every day and somebody's got a hackathon, they've got an innovation lab, uh, they're spending a lot of money on it, whether it's banks uh, or pharmaceutical companies. There seems to be an understanding that um, if you're not keeping up or at least paying attention to a, a voice that might be divergent from yours, you're probably going to uh, the risk being being uh, being decimated. Or no being question. Taken out. So at a very high level, right? The the mindset that should prevail comes from all people. Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. right now, the wealthiest man in the world and the CEO of what what is arguably the most powerful company on the planet today. Yes. And Bezos has the presence of mind to say there will come a day when Amazon will be disrupted. I know it in my heart, right? And and the fact that he's even willing to say that and not be just some typical corporate, you know, booster. And go on and talk about how, you know, you can win or lose at the disruption game. So it it really feeds into the mindset that Andy Grove, the legendary CEO for many, many years of Intel during its glory days, you know, was quoted as saying, only the paranoid survive. And that phrase it's a great quote. is truly profoundly important today. So any CEO that goes to work in the morning and isn't one thinking about disrupting his or her own company or isn't worried about being disrupted by the person in the garage in Bangalore or Shenzhen or you name the place, right? then they probably are not the right person to run the company. So to me, you know, the companies that are doing it right, and, and you know, I study this and it's fascinating, but it doesn't matter if these are American companies companies, Chinese companies, South African companies, European companies, there are some common themes about how these very consistently innovative companies run themselves. Right. At the very top, the CEO is a servant leader. The CEO doesn't rule by decree. The CEO allows for the delegation of responsibility to you know, the lowest levels of the organization, they they believe in the inherent creativity and, you know, capabilities of their people, and they give them the space to innovate. They create a fertile culture for innovation. There's a tremendous amount of autonomy that these people in this company enjoy. And it's it's a remarkably freeing thing when people feel like they have the responsibility and the accountability to figure it out on their own, because then they take it to a completely different level. There's a quote from Steve Jobs that talks about, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, we don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. We hire smart people for them to tell us what to do. Absolutely. And so I think just in terms of the the places where disruption is taking place, you know, Spotify came out of uh, Sweden, right? So there's these, there, there are obviously plenty of places around the world where different things are happening. China, definitely a lot that's happening there, uh, whether it's in automotive or even, you know, with Alibaba kind of spanning across a number of different, different uh, industries. Um, give us some examples of, of companies that, um, you know, let's, maybe we can start with a U.S. company um, and then we can move around and just sort of figure out, you know, in other parts of the world where you're seeing things that are yeah. really interesting and engaging and, and really speak to this spirit of innovation. Yeah. So let me talk about a company that is probably not, the company itself is not in the common consciousness, but the products are. So the company is known as Intuit. It's a Silicon Valley company. It's 30 years old. Intuit does the, um, uh, they, they, no, they were a software company that used to, they didn't do, they bought a tax, they ended up buying the... Well, they own TurboTax, right? They, they created Quicken, right? Yes, and, Quicken and the, and the, And the, the backstory on 
into it is quite interesting, right? You know, Bill Gates version one was a vicious competitor. And he had no problem sleeping like a baby at night after stealing IP from many, many hundreds of startups. <laughs> and, and quite frankly, destroyed many startups yep. That, yep. that were too gullible to realize that if Bill Gates's team was asking for source code, they only had one intention, not to see how good you could code, but to quickly replicate what you do. So in the world of the PC revolution, right, they're really the, the beginning of the digital age as we know it today. Yep. There were two companies that dominated the landscape, Microsoft and Intel. They were collectively Julius Caesar, right? All roads led through those two people and you had to pay a tax to them if you wanted to participate in the PC revolution. And 99% of all of the profits in the PC industry despite thousands of companies participating, went to those two. Hey, there are still companies today that, right, that are suffering from the, the Microsoft uh, you know, stronghold. Absolutely. So the reason I bring that up is because Scott Cook, this mild-mannered, soft-spoken CEO that I refer to as Clark Kent, okay? <laughs> if you see him, he looks a little bit like Mr. Rogers, okay? And... And yet he is Superman. So he was the first guy to take on Microsoft, even though Microsoft had the power to force their less than ideal apps, you know, to, to bundle them, which turned out to be illegal. And they were obviously then, you know, there was a lawsuit brought against them by the U.S. federal government. But he forced every PC maker to take all of his stuff. And so, so consumers were faced with a choice. Do I take Microsoft money, which most people would agree was really inferior, yep. or do I dig into my pocket and I spend 99 bucks on Quicken? And users voted with their pocketbooks and Intuit became a significant company and really the first application to beat Bill Gates, even though the playing field was completely slanted against them. Well, just, just a question there. Yeah. So what, what do you think made that um, happen? What, you know, how did that how do they break in, right? Some, you know, this classic Goliath uh, uh, story there. How, yeah. how do they do it? And I think a lot of it is Scott Cook's leadership, which is why I'm highlighting into it. Scott had been a, uh, a Stanford MBA. He was a guy that had worked at, uh, I believe it was Bain. Mm -hmm. And then he worked at Procter & Gamble. And, you know, and so it was very rare to bring in someone from the consumer packaged goods industry with that real deep customer empathy and market research background, right? Because back in the day of Gates, you know, we're, we're going to tell you what you need. We're going right. to create capabilities and you'll, you'll, you'll You're use what love we him. tell you. <laughs> and so my good friend, Mr. Cook, was way ahead of his time. He was applying what we'll call human-centric design principles. Great. In an era where no one even knew what that was other than Steve Jobs. And so he really went out and did a lot of research, right? And those same... That same philosophy still guides the company today. And so as we sit here today, what I love about Scott Cook and Intuit is Scott, even though he's a billionaire, mm -hmm. and even though his company continues to be named one of the most innovative companies in its industry and in the world year after year, there's, there's this constant relearning, this constant reinvention. So he sees himself as the chief mentor of the company. He refers to his employees as entrepreneurs. Now that's often lip service. Right. But under Scott, it's not. It's the, it's, it's the fabric of the company. So he was the first large corporation to adopt lean startup methodology. The organization is incredibly flat. Scott's mission, his purpose or living is to improve people's or small businesses' financial lives. And he truly believes that. So he sets the grand context for the company. Mm -hmm. And he's got all of these two pizza teams that are using, you know, very, very... Um, 
disciplined lean startup methodology and they're going into the market and they're trying to identify significant problems and frustrations and pain points for their users. And then they come back and to Scott and some of the other leadership team, right? They go through the same kind of mentoring process you would get in an accelerator like Techstars or Y Combinator. Right. And the best ideas continue to advance and get funded. And so it's just, it's a big incubator, right? And it's a big laboratory. Right. And failure is not failure there. Failure is learning. It's an opportunity to say, okay, so maybe our assumptions were not quite right. Let's figure out why our assumptions were not quite right. So that mindset is the common, you know, the common theme across all of the innovative companies I will talk about. There's much more to it, but without right. that level of CEOs, buy-in and making it okay to fail, um, innovation will never flourish in the same way. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the companies that, um, and you, you touched on this a little bit. We talked about leadership style and that being a really important piece of it. Um, let's talk about com- companies that you, you see that have cultures that are um, really best position them to keep up with or not be left behind uh, with all the different innovation that's happening. I mean, I, I read about a lot of startups that are entering a number of different sectors and industries and spaces. So, you know, maybe one or two of those that that you think um, are, are people should be paying attention to or listening out for. Yeah. So let me let me move outside of the United States because there's Perfect. a lot of really cool things happening. Right. Let's talk about an Australian company of all types, uh, a company called Atlassian. Atlassian, yes. And Atlassian is a a very rare example of an Australian tech company that has gone public on the NASDAQ. And, you know, it's it's got two founders that have scaled and are still running the company and they're best friends. And again, they bring the same kind of mindset of a cook or an Adela. It's all about open innovation, right? And and one of the, the hallmarks of their culture is hackathons. And, Love hackathons. And they lean on hackathons in, in a variety of creative ways. So the very first thing they'll do is they'll, they'll start recruiting for their next you know, wave of hires. And they'll identify candidates that appear to have the right stuff and could potentially make it into the, you know, into the Atlassian workforce. And the very first thing they do is they hold hackathons and they bring their, their top candidates in. Oh, interesting. And they use the hackathon as a way to kind of assess, vet, you know, whether what they see on paper or what they may have heard actually is reality because you can learn an awful lot about someone and the kind of intense experience that a hackathon is, right? You can tell whether they're good teammates, whether they work well under pressure, whether they're able to really do what they say. So if you make it through the hackathon, then the next thing that happens is the Atlassian will onboard people, you know, in cohorts. So they'll onboard all of the new employees in a hackathon. Also, so some of these folks who get onboarded are actually have experienced working together, which is a great team bonding exercise as well. Exactly. Okay, fantastic. Right. And so you've now got some of the new hiring managers along with some of their, their newly hired employees, you know, working together on problems that may be challenges in that work group or that department or that business unit. And then the most striking thing of all is that once a quarter, Atlassian shuts down the company and they run a two-day hackathon for everybody. And this is what I think is the most interesting piece of this. Even though Atlassian is an incredibly well-managed company, the stuff that gets born in the hackathon is almost inevitably the most creative, the most interesting, the most powerfully innovative stuff that they come up with. And even though I have been a professor and I've taught MBAs for 20 plus years, It begs the question, are we really managing people the right way? Because the day that the the real innovation happens at Atlassian is when the managers get out of the way. Right, right. And allow innovation to flourish. 
So what I love about Atlassian is, you know, they, they have an incredible amount of faith in just putting groups of people together and knowing that great ideas can come from anyone at any time. Doesn't matter if you're an undergraduate that has no professional experience or one of the employees. And it really drives the product roadmap of the company. And, and they've used it consistently for years and it's really worked for them. We've given our audience and our listeners a lot of information to digest. I think we're probably now at one of my favorite segments. Uh, this is a segment that I think we'll be doing for a while, which is um, I'm going to put Mike on the spot. I'm going to ask him to give me you know, things that you're paying attention to. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, one of the more significant things is that SoftBank has announced that it has begun to, you know, get serious investors in its second division fund. Now let's explain why this is so important. Venture capital has been around since the 1950s. And when I mean venture capital, I'm talking about a very specific kind of asset class where professional investors invest other people's money into very risky technology startups mm-hmm. uh, to fund deficits and hopefully get to some kind of break even. The very first venture capital fund was started right here in Boston in 1953. It was a $3 million fund mm-hmm. and it was MIT endowment. Masahoshi Sun has been running the SoftBank Group, and SoftBank ostensibly started off its life as a telecommunications company. Yeah. They're a large investor in Sprint. But Sun is uh, an iconoclast. And a few years ago, largely through money from the Saudi government's sovereign fund, he put together a $100 billion venture capital. I remember that fund. Almost half of it came from the Saudi government. Did not know that part. What's remarkable is how quickly he's deployed the capital. It would take most American VCs seven years to deploy a billion dollars. It's taken Sun just about two or three years to deploy a hundred billion dollars. But Sun is incredibly optimistic. Now, he's the largest investor in Uber. He's the largest investor in WeWork. So, He's making some massive bets, right? He is actually the dominant investor in almost all of the major ride-hailing companies hmm. in countries around the world. And, and he, he clearly wants to do this, this global domination of sort of the next generation of, you know, rideshare mobility. But the reason that this is so interesting is that he's changed the game forever in venture capital. And the, you know, something that Reid Hoffman, the founder of, of LinkedIn, has phrased Blitzscaling, a book that he wrote with Christopher Yee. You know, you need someone like Sun who can come in and make a $100 million investment, right? And so it used to be that big companies had the advantage of capital, but, but all of a sudden with the Vision Fund, mm-hmm. um, that's no longer the case. So Sun will come in and he will very quickly write you a check for $100 million. Sun's actually gotten so aggressive that he'll come into an industry, he'll pick the company he thinks will be the winner, and he'll sidle up to the CEO and say, listen, I want to write you a check for $100 million. I want you to be sort of the the global scale company, even if that CEO was not raising money. Hmm. And then Sun will further say, but if you're not ready for the money, I will go invest in one of your biggest competitors. (laughs) And it's kind of like a modern version of The Sopranos, where if you don't pay me protection money, I'm going to put a garbage pail through your front window of your storefront. Very few people refuse those entreaties, right? But it's, 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 created a bubble mentality in Silicon Valley. Um, it's because nobody can afford to pay the kind of valuations that Sun and SoftBank are paying. 
So when a traditional Silicon Valley VC looks across at this competition, there's a point where he just, you know, like in a poker game, he just, he gives Fold. up. Yeah. He just folds. He can't, he can't afford to keep pace at the kind of valuation. So on many levels, Sun has really almost single-handedly contributed to the, the bubble in Silicon Valley. Um, he's changed the way that venture capitalists think about raising money. Now there are a lot more $10 billion funds than have there ever been. Right. And we set a new record for $100 million investments last year. It used to be the rare, rare deal. It was almost always a biotech deal that was 100 million. Now you're seeing a lot of software companies. Right. So I don't think it's a healthy trend. Mm. And now he's just announced he's raised the second fund. And what I thought was very interesting is that in the first fund, you didn't really have um, sophisticated companies coming in. But now Apple and Goldman Sachs have uh, you know raised their hands and they're going to be big participants in the second fund. Interesting. Now I have a feeling Apple's doing it because of the pressure they're under in China. Um, and there was an article recently and it said that, you know, Apple is considering moving production of its phones, iPhones to Vietnam because of the trade wars. So I have a feeling Apple's looking for a good friend in Asia. And Got I think it. to be on the wrong side of Masa Sun is probably not a good thing for Apple as they see their fortunes decline in China. Mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs, you know, I find it very interesting because let's be honest, the, uh, the Saudi sovereign fund is attached to, uh, Prince MSD. Uh, and we, I don't think I have to remind people of what MSD is most recently known for. <laughs> uh, and on the one hand, Goldman has just announced, uh, uh, you know, a massive social conscious venture fund. And this seems to be at the antithesis of, of what that is. So yeah. Goldman's just making money. So Sun has uh, brought in some very credible corporates to his second fund. And I think the fact that he's going to double down um, is is only going to continue to sort of, you know, allow this bubble mentality to permeate Silicon Valley. And and I don't believe it's going to end well, quite frankly. Time's up. That's our segment for today. Join us next week as we bring you more on disruptive innovation. To find notes from the show, links to interesting articles, and to see what's coming next, follow us on social media. On Twitter, you can find us using the handle Disruptive Innovation Podcast, or visit our blog at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.live. Until next week, from Nikiso and Mike, bye for now.